Welcome to Everything Leftover, our podcast on HBO's The Leftovers. My name is Justin Blizzard. I'm here with Keith Krepko. Howdy. And we're going to be talking about episode three, um, Two Boats and Helicopter. Um, before we get started, though, I kind of wanted to address... Um, our flood of reviews... <laughs> yeah. Uh well yeah, I'll say we've got a we had two two uh positive reviews since the last uh show. And I'd like to say thank you for that. I don't remember the names off the top of my head, but that's motivation for you the listener to go look them up. <laughs> and while you're there looking them up, maybe that's terrible. leave us a, another positive review. <laughs> I was going to say, you, you have to bring it tonight, Justin, because you actually know we have at least two people listening. Right. Yeah, that's true. But you've already derailed the whole thing. Yeah, well, whatever. I see I'm going to have to carry the usual load, 100% yeah. right. of the podcast. Um, what? But what I wanted to talk about was the lost comparisons. And I know that I've done it a lot, a lot in the past two episodes, but something I've noticed especially recently on Reddit is there and also in like the reviews and at some, at some, you know, it feels like at some, at some, you know, sort of point you can't help, but make the, the comparison to lost when it's, you know, Damon Lindelof's only other television credit outside Mm of Nash bridges, which I don't think Mm. is really applicable. (laughs) Right. Um, but I think they have to stop. Right. Yeah, like I, I think I think the way that people are making the comparisons have to stop. I think that there is something like we said previously to looking at somebody's previous work to help illuminate their current work. Yeah. But not in a way where you set a standard where you go, "Hey, the faults of this previous work, you better fix those." Right. You know, I'm more interested like in you know some of the the uh, reviews um, in, in an interview I read today, in looking at how Damon Lindelof kind of spearheaded this approach of using episode three to focus on one character, yeah, Tom Parada wasn't sure about it. He kind of wanted to keep it broad. Still. Oh, really? Yeah, and that goes back to Lost. Damon Lindelof, I think, did great kind of character centric episodes. So. I think that's an interesting point of contrast to see where that came from. So in I agree with you in the way that people make those comparisons and use Lost like a weapon. That needs to stop. That's not helpful. Well, yeah, and also something I was starting to see uh, on Reddit was a lot of people were saying we're, we're making that comparison now in a positive light, which is fine. I'm glad that, you know, you're finding a, another reason to like the show. I just feel I just feel like... I don't want to. I don't want to be constantly, even for the rest of this season, the next seven episodes, want to be making comparisons to Lost and right. reading comparisons to Lost. Um, that's just seems like it's going to be a little boring. Right. I'm or with just you. Just a that. little redundant. You know, I, I would rather talk to the or talk about the the show at hand. Uh, but the episode is called Two Boats and a Helicopter." Uh, and I want, let's just go, let's just start by giving a, a general impression of the episode. Okay. Um, I'll, I'll start off by saying, you know, the, I thought, I thought the pilot was okay. Right. 
had my mm-hmm. interest. I thought the second episode was pretty bad. Mm-hmm. Um, and I thought this episode was terrific. <laughs> I love this episode. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think a lot of that has to do with what I was talking about in the last show that I had a real issue with, and that was Peter Berg, right? And this um, this episode is directed by our our uh, our favorite. Keith, Keith Gordon, Gordon, right? I was so so happy to see that. The Chocolate War. The Chocolate War, yeah. Mm-hmm. So for anyone that's listening that is not familiar with Keith Gordon, uh, try and watch The Chocolate War. It's a movie that he directed that is really good. Um, but anyways, I, I, I felt that that, uh, that change in direction was noticeable right from the beginning because it's not as frenetic. It's not, you know, it's not... You, you have this opening scene that I thought was, was, was just... Uh, constructed really great where you have Matt delivering his sermon or, you know, he's, he's, deli- he's more or less telling you the story of him as a boy when he's getting leukemia. And that's narrated over the various sort of tedious, um, tasks of being a preacher or whatever. Right. Uh, and it just, I don't know. It was just, it, it felt like this sort of like low key kind of introspective, um, sequence that this, show needs instead of you know sort of like extreme close-ups of characters you know what i mean like mm-hmm. that that peter berg was sort of delivering did you feel the same way you liked the episode uh i <clears throat> i thought the episode was great i'm i'm really interested to talk about the one shift that i had to do on the episode the one thing that caused me to um, need to watch it again, really, and change my headspace was my own kind of expectations that I brought. But I think mm-hmm. once I watched it again, um, I think I fully embraced what the episode was. So yeah, I'm in total agreement with you. Episode one was intriguing. Episode two, to me, was a complete kind of misstep. You're just treading water. Yeah, you're treading water in a way that is not interesting and the way that you're introducing these characters is not compelling. Yeah. It's not a compelling way to do it. Um, This third episode, I do think, is back on board and I think there's a lot of subtext in there too that they managed to put in that that I thought was interesting. Yeah, and, and so let's talk about a little bit of that subtext with the title itself, Two Boats and a Helicopter, is a reference to an old, not parable, but just like an old, I guess, story. Proverb. Proverb. Um, and I was unfamiliar with it, and I asked around on Reddit, and a bunch of people gave me the answer, but, but apparently it's a reference to the story uh, of a preacher who lives in a house uh, in a city that's being flooded. Mm-hmm. And as the uh, waters are rising, someone stops by with a boat and says, and offers him a ride out of the, out of his flooding Office. house. Mm-hmm. And he says, no, God will take care of me. A little bit later, someone else shows up with the boat. He declines, says, no, God will take care of me. A little bit later, he's then on the, the waters have rise high enough that he's on the roof of his house. Someone shows up with a helicopter and says, and offers him offers him a ride out, and he says, "No, God, God will take care of me." Eventually, he drowns in the water, gets to heaven, and asks God what happened. And God says, "I sent you two boats and a helicopter. What else do you want?" Right. Um. So jumping off from there, 
how do you feel that that, you know, this episode obviously was was all about Matt, the preacher. How do you feel that, um, do you feel that there's like a one-to-one uh, comparison from the title to the sh- to the events of the show or to Matt specifically? Or do you think it's maybe the title is just supposed to, the title in that that proverb is just supposed to convey a, a, a general meaning? I think that's that's interesting. That was one of my questions um, because I was trying to analyze both, right? So number one, if we take it literally, then Matt would be the closest corollary we would have to that man of faith right. stuck in his house. So then we would need you know, two or three offerings of help that he would reject that would ultimately lead to his destruction, you know, in the literal interpretation. So what is destructed? He loses his church. So that fits. Then what are the two avenues or three avenues that he is rejecting on the way to his destruction? Mm -hmm. And I think that's where it's interesting. Um, If you think his sister is one who's saying, let the church go. Or maybe you could say the first one is the fact that somebody's trying to buy the church out from under him and he only has a day to raise money, mm-hmm. right? If he lets that go, then his life is going to be on a drastically different track. And like his sister says, maybe he can finally give up this, you know, witch hunt, uh, this obsession that he's had fueling him for the last three years and actually do something constructive, mm-hmm. you know, with his life maybe or, or do some, or, or move past his own grief you know, in this situation. Um, or you have like this pigeon, these pigeons, right? right? You have these kind of, this seeming offering of of help and redemption that leads him to the gambling tables that actually turns out to be, you know, the agent of his demise that he goes after this money, he gets it and it leads him down the path that he goes down. Mm-hmm. You know, those are two drastically different paths where I think, you know, the pigeons don't represent the help that you would assume that they did mm-hmm. because he got money out of it, right? He mm-hmm. had enough to save mm-hmm. save the church, but I think that that was like, um, you know, it felt more like a trick of Lucifer than it did of God maybe, you know, like follow me this way, I'm promising hope. And so I would think that, you know, to me, I would I would take it as a literal interpretation, mm-hmm. and and then I view it as as interesting as to how that works out overall in the uh, in the flow of the episode. And so I would think the the guilty remnant buying the church and Nora were the two offerings of help that he rejects and goes down this false path mm-hmm. towards his own destruction, viewing that as God's God's help. You know, mm-hmm. so I mean. I guess I'm tipping my hand to say that I feel like the path that he follows is not of God at all. The pigeons, I, I guess I'm going to stake my claim as being not harbingers of of goodwill and of guidance, but as a false, you know, guide to him. Yeah. Does that make sense? I feel so like I talked you, a lot. So you feel that Nora is offering the help. Nora is offering the help by saying Nora's compromise was I will give you the money to buy your church back but you have to stop publishing the paper this paper where he's you know condemning the people who disappeared 
mm-hmm. right? By bringing to light their negative actions. And then the guilty remnant, how are the guilty remnant offering the help? Just by buying the church? Just by buying the church, right? So, mm. you know, to me, the, the, the path of his salvation is to leave the ministry, you know? The path to, that he should be on is listening to his sister. And right. the path that he tries to go on that he assumes is is the salvation, quote unquote, path, which would be doing God's work, right? Mm-hmm. Keeping the church active, mm-hmm. keeping his ministry of spreading the bad word of what these people have done active is actually the the false path. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think... Um, I think that's interesting and I think there isn't really a one-to-one connection between the, 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 the proverb and the, at least this, uh, episode, you know, maybe further on into the season and into the series, there'll be a a clearer path. But at this point, I kind of just got maybe the general, the general connection of the guy in the proverb is missing um what god is telling him basically right and that's matt matt's doing the same thing like mm-hmm. he's he's so focused on this one thing of you know getting the church or or actually probably more appropriately of um bringing to light all of these people's terrible actions he's so focused on that that he's missing the actual point or, right or whatever yeah, I guess I guess I just wanted to float that as a theory that I had. That was me basically because I thought the exact same thing when I was thinking about the, you know, the title, mm-hmm. and that's why I came up with. I'm not saying that that's my official view, but I'm saying if I do think that the title is literal, that would be my interpretation. Mm-hmm. You know, um, and I guess does that fully check out? I haven't thought about it further than just. You know, thinking this would be my literal interpretation of the parable applied to this story. Yeah. But I think I agree with you. Having said all that, I'd, I'd probably backtrack to say, I think I agree with you that it's maybe more of a mood. It's just like the penguin thing. Mm-hmm. You know, it's yeah. not there as a literal, the penguin did not win. Right. <laughs> in any right. real sense. Uh, so I'm I'm probably more in line with you that's more of a theme and an idea, a mood for it. Yeah. Um, but I thought it was interesting to tease it out literally and come up with that interpretation. I think that's something I'd, I'd like to follow through on as we learn more about Matt. Yeah. So it turns out um, Matt's church, it, it, the population has, has dwindled down to three or four mm-hmm. people. Um, do you think who, who are not? And this is just a side question. They're not out there handing out flyers with him. Do you have the right. sense that they are, I, I almost had the sense that they are reluctant members, like they're mm-hmm. there despite their pastor, they're there because of their faith or else. Right. They, or just out of habit, maybe. Out of or, habit, or else they yeah. would be out there handing out flyers too. I think it's interesting that Matt is always shown as the only person. Yeah, he's pretty much isolated in, right. you know, whatever he's doing. Um, he definitely doesn't seem to have the support of his congregation, which, like I said, at this point is like four or five people. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, one lady's still horrified when he gets beat up. And one back, <laughs> lady, do you not know? Like, yeah, yeah like everyone else is acting like this has happened before. So right. Maybe she's, she's like a new member or something. Uh, maybe. <laughs> um, 
So how do, how do you think, do you, what do you think about that sort of uh, element of the story? Do, do you, do you find, first of all, I guess I, I should say I'm, so, I'm sort of looking at it as, you know, I think the the series is giving you this general sense that um, religion is more or less frowned upon, or maybe not even frowned upon, as it is just sort of forgotten, kind of, right? Mm-hmm. Um, in the series as a whole, but I also feel like I feel like this could very well be explained as a result of Matt's uh, condemning everyone in the in the society that mm-hmm. he is that now no one wants to go to his church. And for the most part, church attendance could be what it normally is. And yeah. I think that's also kind of supported in the first episode where it shows kids in the classroom praying and, you know, a time of prayer being offered in the classroom. It, it seems a little, that seems a little, um, um, contrary to the idea that, religion has more or less been forgotten about. That's interesting. I I honestly didn't really think too much about that specifically, but I think you're right. In ways, it seems like the show is portraying the culture as being a little more um, open to religious expression Mm -hmm. in the face of this mystery. But then you also see in in the individual depiction of it, you don't see any kind of overtly religious characters or i guess i should say none that are representing a a kind of careful circumspect view of it it's either matt who's crazy in his own way as crazy as the guilty remnant or it's the guilty remnant or it's the teenagers who are playing a horrific game of you know yeah sexual roulette yeah um you know what I mean? And it's like these these extremes. Mm-hmm. And you don't see, yeah, like the reasoned, rational, religious person being like, oh, this kind of checks out. If you look at the Bible, it's kind of roughly there. Sure, some of the specifics didn't come off the way that we thought it would. Mm-hmm. But, you know, to me, I, I think that that voice would be present a little more than it is. Mm-hmm. But maybe, you know, we're, we're following lost characters. I mean... You know, later on, we're going to talk about the dream sequence where Matt's burning just like um, Kevin is, Mm -hmm. you know, so maybe we're just following a handful of lost characters and there are millions out there who are responding, you know, more uh, moderately Mm -hmm. than these characters, I guess. Mm -hmm. Or maybe more faith based or. Yeah, or more faith based, you know, and, and with a faith that does not lead to extremism it exists as much as you know we sometimes don't think it does it's out there i think yeah so let's use that to just go right into how how do you feel that in the face of the departure the show is depicting religion or faith i I mean we talked about a little bit where where it doesn't seem to really exist at all outside of matt like I said, even his congregation, and like you said, even his congregation is kind of just like there. They don't really right. seem to be involved at all. Um, no one is helping him pass out flyers or, you know, the church isn't, you know, obviously it's not making any money because it's been foreclosed on. Um, 
So how do you what what do you think this episode specifically has to say about religion, maybe in general, mm-hmm. and within the context, you know, within the parameters of the show and in the face of the departure? I think I think for me it was kind of surprising how religious this episode got. Mm-hmm. To me, um, where before this, I kind of took this as a show being a secular take on a religious event. And I found that interesting. I found that engaging. As the show has gone on, I've seen more and more religious imagery worked Mm -hmm. into it from the title sequence, which we talked about before. Mm -hmm. And then this episode comes along. And all of a sudden, you have a man of faith. And you also have allusions in the show itself to Job. Acting like a Job-like character. Being put upon like Job. Mm -hmm. And... uh, the events of the episode and specifically Matt feel orchestrated to such an extent that I couldn't watching it shake the idea that this is an act of God. Mm-hmm. And surprisingly, Alan Sepinwall, who I read his recaps afterwards, seemed to not even debate that fact. In his review, he just talks about, you know, this God is obviously like having fun with Matt, mm-hmm. you know, is kind of... Um, putting him through his paces. And in that way, I, I was surprised that the show so fully embraced that kind of overt Matt is being moved along this this path. Mm-hmm. He is going to be led through birds, through the pigeons, to this place, to this specific table. He's going to win three specific times. That couple is going to come to him at the right time. You know, the man is going to try and take his winnings. Like... You know, he's going to stop to help somebody. A rock is going to get thrown at his head. I mean, all of that is so orchestrated that made me feel like, well, to me, this this show is finally, it does answer the big question. This is a universe in which a God exists based on this episode. Mm-hmm. Either that or this is a show in which writers exist and writers don't mind like peeking from behind the curtain being like, hey, guys. Look, we're writing. We're mm-hmm. writing the show. We're making Matt do these things, you know, all to tell you a bigger point. And so I don't think that they're being as obvious. And again, this is my interpretation mm-hmm. for the writers to be like, hey, look, look at us write. Look at us move Matt around. Look at us, you know, like put Matt through all these tribulations. Mm-hmm. I do think in that case, it is this God who's orchestrating or better yet, it's it's a Satan figure. It's a Lucifer figure being loosed on Matt like Job. Mm-hmm. So in that in that sense, I think it is saying something about faith and religion that I think checks with, um, you know, a more kind of nuanced vision of sup- of the supernatural and mm-hmm. man's role in that Mm um so i guess for me it's not saying anything overt because we don't know who is behind these events you know like i just said before with job it's god allowing it but it's satan acting it if that kind of scenario is set up or is this a capricious god who's just like i want to do this to these people and I want to see how they react. And I want mm. to do this to Matt. Um, I don't know what it's saying specifically, I guess, but I think it is showing that it's going to say something 
more generally about faith, or it's going to be more and more and more about faith uh, than it has previously. Mm-hmm. Did that? I feel like I didn't answer your question. I kind of no, you danced you, around it. No, you did. Um, but I feel like I, I think for me, what I what I keep going back to is this is an this entire episode is is told from matt's perspective you never leave matt in the entire episode right and in matt's universe god does exist right i don't think that means that god exists for the show i don't think that that means that i I don't think that that theme of god and religion and the departure maybe being spiritual in nature or having something to do with biblical themes i think that that is i think that's uh i think that exists in matt's universe and i think we get that because like i said this entire episode is dedicated to matt but i don't think that that's a universal truth for the rest of the show and i don't see that i mean you know and and this uh, this this is just projecting on what the show could be in the future but i don't see that as being a universal truth that sort of or or, uh, an umbrella that covers the rest of the characters in the show i think we could get um you know an entire episode from uh you know maybe someone in the guilty remnant who has no belief structure whatsoever and god never comes into play in that episode and it just is ambiguous maybe yeah it's it's been said before um or it's not said it's been done before where you have a perspective of a character inform the overall story mm-hmm. and, and dominate it to the point where you realize that person would we were just seeing their visions or mm-hmm. whatever and i would agree with you to an extent except for the stupid pigeons like Either that is a really heavy metaphor that's just kind of thrown in there or um, that is direction being given to Matt. That somebody is, is, is orchestrating these pigeons because you hear a man exclaim at the table that he sees the pigeons. Pigeons flew into a casino and land on a roulette table like... Yeah, but I, you're—I I understand, but you're also just—I mean, you're also following a character who's looking for signs in literally everything. Yeah, yeah, except and so he's seeing pigeons. Well, well, yeah, and it was like if if they'd kept it ambiguous, had anybody else seen those pigeons? You know, like like they are with the hunter. You know, like if this was more of like Kevin, who's seeing things. Yeah, is he seeing things? Are other people seeing things? The fact that other people are seeing the central kind of idea of his vision Mm -hmm. you know the pigeons then that makes me think that those pigeons are real and then when i think about you know the pigeons in the church all the pigeons he sees as he goes about his like you know right uh quest i'm just like okay those pigeons are either some huge you know um joke like in joke Mm -hmm. that i don't get and in that in that way, the writers are tipping their hand again. Mm-hmm. The writers are literally like reaching through the screen and being like waving at me like, hey, do you see what we wrote here? Isn't that great? Isn't that clever? Mm-hmm. You know, or it's an actual kind of guiding, you know, kind of idea 
format or not even idea because it's real, but they're guiding pigeons, you know, for format. Mm -hmm. I, I would agree with you except for, you know, the, the, the pigeons to me, if they were more ambiguous, had other people not seen them or whatever, I I would have. The pigeons are the definition of ambiguous. They're just pigeons. And because you're following Matt, you you know, like I said, Matt is looking for signs. And so he sees like the first pigeon. It's literally just a pigeon walking around on the porch of the church. But don't you feel and like from the, the very. And then he sees two pigeons on it on a table right. that he gambles at later. But he then, and then he sees away. three pigeons on top of a traffic light. Mm hmm. And then in the casino, that on the very table that he wants yeah, to play. Yeah, I understand. And he the plays three reds. And he plays red. Red, right. red, red. That that all come up. To me, I want I want to ask like, doesn't his story from scene one feel orchestrated in such a way that you felt like I felt like the ending? I knew exactly where the ending was going. To me, it was like Take Shelter, which is a movie I loved. Where you know the ending starting off, the journey to get there is interesting, and that's saying something about faith as well. Um, but in this one, from scene one, I was like, I know exactly where this is going. You know, I know he's not going to make you know this payment. The way that that happened didn't it feel to you overly orchestrated. Didn't it feel to you like too much of a story was happening to this man that wasn't just natural occurrences that were going on. It was a series of orchestrated set pieces designed to lead him to this end place that is either writers being way too obvious or this deity figure or satanic figure leading Matt down this, down this path. I just, I mean, I, I really can't get outside of the construct of like, I already know that people are writing it. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. So I just, I can't, I, 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 that is a, a disbelief that I can't suspend. Suspend. Right. Uh um, I, well, well, I'll just say this. I will say that I may be over analyzing, overthinking it, but I will say my central question for this, and I wish, I hope that one of the two people who are listening will help me with this, <laughs> honestly, is to say, you know, do I have a point in saying that what happens to Matt is so, feels so orchestrated? that you feel the hand of whoever is orchestrating those event events for him, either a deity figure in his universe or the writers outside of his universe being a little too insistent upon his narrative. Like maybe if they stretch that out over a few episodes, it would feel a little less like compiling like, Hey, do you get the Job references yet? Hey, do you, are you seeing what we're doing? You know? Yeah. And I think I, to that point, I think I would default to just sort of maybe like a little too much showboating with the writing. With the writing? With okay. Anything. And I think what I, and what I wanted to say, and I think the reason I would come to that conclusion is just because of the first two episodes. And they do a lot to um, make sure you know that this isn't explicitly about a religious rapture, that there are different takes on this. Some people believe that you know it was a rapture some people don't know what to believe a lot of people don't know what happened and the show up until this episode hasn't been ambiguous about um whether it was religious or not it's i feel like it's it's said nobody really knows which Mm -hmm. i think is different than being deliberately ambiguous obtuse 
Yeah, I guess I'll say this to go back and answer your original question. To me, how this show treats faith and belief, I don't think is as interested in that because it does not try and give, I think, a representative reaction from somebody of belief, of true belief. Mm -hmm. I would question, you know, like the way that Matt reacts to this whole thing kind of tips the hands that he had some false or wrong ideas starting off, right? If something like this happens and all of a sudden his first reaction is like, I need to show how evil everybody is. That's not the right response, you know? Like, so something was off before a little bit, maybe, you know, in his construct idea or mental ideas. To me, if the show is interested in faith or belief, you would seek to give an answer specifically based on faith or belief, you know? Yeah. And therefore one character would probably be saying what we, what we referenced before, right? What is the actual biblical view of the rapture? Mm-hmm. And other than non-Christians and Christians being taken, everything is checking with that account. And you don't hear anybody saying that you see Matt who's perplexed, right? Yeah. To me, it's like, it's as simple as, Oh wow, we thought only believers would be taken. Guess we were wrong about the rapture, but obviously the the rapture is right. So what's going to happen next? Yeah. And no character's doing that. So I don't think the show is as interested in faith or belief. It's more interested in these characters. Right. But faith and belief is becoming more part of the show than I thought it would be mm-hmm. starting off. Right. The next thing I wanted to would talk about um was the it's it's sort of like a when i first watched it or i guess when it first begun i thought maybe like the life was flashing before his eyes matt yeah uh, and it's after he gets hit in the face pretty brutally with a rock, <laughs> with a rock. um and he goes down and it immediately cuts to him walking up to his church mm-hmm. and you start to realize um that this is his family church uh and it's more more than likely probably his first time visiting it and and the adult version of matt that we've seen in all episode is standing in for the maybe five or six years old however he was when that actually happens um so he walks through the church he gets to the back of the church and um walks in on his own diagnosis of leukemia uh which is ties back into the story that he's telling at the beginning of the episode, which I was completely lost on after you the didn't actual know he was talking beginning. about himself. Right. Earlier, and yeah. like, and, and my wife was even like, can you rewind that? And we rewound it and listened to it again. I was still just like, I don't get it. Uh, but eventually I got it. Uh, and, but then that cuts to, uh, he's watching the, his house burn with his sister. Right. Mm-hmm. And apparently his parents are trapped inside. And then it then goes to uh, the actual departure, which we were talking about uh, a little before when you mentioned what was the catalyst for Matt to start acting this way. And maybe he was a little unstable to begin with. And uh, he, he could have been, but after watching that a second time, you from from watching the scene of the departure and from the conversation he has with Nora in the kitchen, and she brings up the judge... And the judge is being the first person he goes after, after the accident. Mm -hmm. And then you realize that 
their car was hit by an empty car during the departure, which is more than likely probably the judge's car, mm-hmm. which then paralyzed his wife. And so that was probably the sort of jumping off point for him to be like, you know, this for whatever reason, maybe just out of frustration or maybe he felt like it was unfair what happened to him, to, to his wife. And so he's like, I'm going to bring this judge down and prove that it wasn't the rapture. Uh, and then that, and then, and then, and then it start and then it goes into like nightmare territory. Yeah. Right. So yeah. all of that leading up to it was probably was more or less a flashback or him reliving moments. And then it goes into nightmare territory where he's having sex with his, wife who then turns into Lori, Lori but as she's turning into Lori there's also um a kind of a quiet voiceover that's easy to miss of Norris saying why do you persist right and yeah. i believe that's what Norris Norris says something like that in the kitchen right but it's Norris saying it um and i was wondering before we get to the very end of that if you had any like is that supposed to mean that like, I, I mean, I'm guess I, I'm taking it to mean as, as a representation of like him having impure thoughts, maybe, you know, like he just saw Lori the other night when he was digging up the money in the Garvey's backyard. And I mean, we all know that dreams can are more or less just like a mashup of everything you've experienced in that day or week or whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's kind of what it seemed like to me. And again, I'm, I think the show has given me enough to think it's not going to go down this path. But like if there were, I just feel like the possibility of an affair between those two would be so stupid. Yeah. <laughs> like, um, so anyways, after the, so, so I guess during that he then catches on fire, right? Mm-hmm. His hands, his hands catch on fire, which is interesting because in the second episode, yeah, in the second episode during Kevin's dream. dream, he also catches on fire. And I was wondering what you do you think there's a connection in that or do you think the show just likes to use fire as a <laughs> like a metaphor? Right. They're going back to the firewell again. Yeah. <laughs> I I think yeah, I'm I'm not going to probably have anything more to say than just the biblical imagery of you know, what is being sorted out or discarded or, you know, separated as being burnt. That these are potentially people who feel, you know, to use a terrible phrase, left behind, you know, mm-hmm. or in some ways not, uh, not, not adequate to be taken, you know, to wherever the people were. Mm-hmm. Um that they do feel discarded or left or forgotten in some ways. And so that could explain the burning imagery. And, you know, it's interesting to think about where the fires start with both of them or why Matt's hands are being, you know, starting with the fire. And I couldn't help but think about the work of his hands, which is to attack the people who Mm -hmm. are, who are, uh, departed yeah and that it's in some ways a a judgment against that and i wonder if he feels secretly guilty about what he does Mm -hmm. about that activity or if he's so you know bought into that idea you know i couldn't help after this episode you do feel for matt 
but I also felt yeah. like he's as bad as the guilty remnant. Right. You know, he, I think if he had his way, would do his own guilty remnant thing right. where he'd have his own followers. They'd all be handing well, out flyers and, in a way and investigating he is, people. Yeah. yeah. In a way, he's trying to. He's, he's just not as to. successful. Yeah. Right? <laughs> yeah, because, I mean, his idea is on its face. It's wrong. Yeah. It's, you can pretty objectively say yeah. you probably shouldn't be doing that. Um, and so I find, I found that kind of uh, interesting. Yeah. Yeah, it seemed it seemed to me that Matt the flames in Match a Dream are more or less probably a straightforward interpretation of like he's doing something that's wrong, so now he's like being We're gonna light his hands on fire. Hell, there you in, go. In hell flame, right? Right. Whereas I'm still a little uh about Kevin. Yeah, I'm still a little, you know, uh in the weeds as far as it goes with Kevin, because it doesn't there doesn't seem to be that that straightforward of a meaning and i, I want to make a quick note too i feel like there was uh, an aggression like an insistence in lost that anytime a mystery was introduced mm-hmm. that people especially towards the end of the show were immediately calling for answers mm-hmm. like they could not you know introduce one false kind of reference yeah without people being like what do you mean by that you know like that needs to be answered there is a sense, especially for me, that I feel like in Lost, where I'm not as uh, kind of demanding of those. I do feel like this show has a better sense of its characters yeah. and what it's saying. That as you introduce, like, yeah, what does it mean that Kevin was on fire? What does all the fire imagery mean? I'm a little more relaxed about that mm-hmm. in, in the with the idea that that will be answered in the way that they've answered some of the other minor character things from what is it that Holy Wayne does to yeah. Matt's backstory. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so questions like why did Lori choose the guilty remnant? I'm not, I don't have like a timestamp on those things. Like, okay, next episode, I better get Lori <laughs> right. or else I'm done. You know, yeah. I, I'm a little more like let this show play out. And I'm pretty sure that we're going to have answers to those, you know, by uh, series end. Yeah. Um, yeah, so that that's all, and that's all we've got really for the sort of meat of the episode. But I wanted to uh, go into and sort of toss some ideas uh, that I had uh, throughout the throughout the episode, uh, and just sort of get your opinion on them. And the first the first one I was thinking about, and I don't think the show is going to do this, um, but thinking about it a little bit more, I'm hoping that it's like it maybe becomes a regular thing. But I was wondering what you thought about, like, if the show tried to do, like, a more character-driven approach to each episode. So kind of like what the Game of Thrones books do, mm-hmm. where it's like each chapter is, you know, this is Jon Snow's chapter. And the entire thing is told from his perspective. Or a worse example of that, or a poor example, would be kind of like what the fourth season of Arrested Development tried to do. Yeah. Which didn't really work. But I really enjoyed having the entire episode told from this one character's perspective. Do you think that would work for the whole season or for a whole series? I don't think so. In that interview with Tom Parada, he says that there's one more coming up. There's one more episode this season Mm -hmm. that is one character's perspective. Mm -hmm. And he said that he feels like the third and that one are the two strongest episodes of the season. Mm -hmm. So, I think what gives them their power is that they, we can't rely on them every week. Yeah, you know? that's true. The, the other thing too is I think the, the detail of each character 
if you just do 50 minutes on them, has such a high degree of difficulty, which That's is true. one reason why I struggled with the amount of plot that happened to Matt in this short episode. Mm-hmm. And it could be just the creaky wheels of the writers being like, we're just following Matt. This is just about Matt. We have all these ideas we want to get in on him uh, in this one episode that I don't think you could sustain that for you know, multiple weeks with one character, I think it would be kind of exhausting. So I am kind of looking forward to what can they do telling the broader story next week and how can they, you know, change that up from what we expect. Yeah. You know? And all from all reports, the fourth episode is supposed to be great, right? Like that's like, why I've heard. I've heard the third episode was really good. I've heard the fourth episode is even better. And and that's where the screener stopped. I think, I think mm-hmm. that's why I read in Steppenwall's write up that he's only seen one beyond this one. Mm-hmm. And to me, that probably speaks to let's give the critics up until like the fourth is a good place to start. Stop, you know, yeah. because maybe it's so good. Right. So I think it all kind of leads into me believing that, yeah, this fourth one is going to be yeah pretty good. Okay. Uh, another thing that I uh, noticed during uh, while watching this episode is the only significant time we've, the only characters we've spent significant time with in the series so far are characters who haven't actually lost anybody in the departure. Yeah. So you true. have all of the Carvies, um, and then you have the preacher of course and then um there's Liv tyler meg and i i guess we don't know if she's lost anybody explicitly yeah, but it some hasn't of the people been, we don't know it hasn't been brought up so i wouldn't imagine she she has but you know it could be brought up yeah later. We, we don't know what happened to her mother right she wanted right. to hold on to her mom's yeah clothing and then there's so. nora who, who lost obviously everybody. lost her whole family but she's kind of been a on the periphery for Peripheral. most of the series so far. She hasn't. Yeah, I just even, thought that was kind of a, a an interesting choice. I don't know if they're going to like address that. Address that because it would seems it seems a little weird if you're going to have a whole series and not have any of the characters have actually lost anybody. Yeah, to, there's Nora. To to me it goes back to what we talked about in our first episode too where the I remember some people were saying in the comment section on a post, like 2% is nothing. Like, yeah. how ridiculous. But I feel like it's the perfect number. And I think it's well reflected in this show where you realize 2% is significant, but it also could miss a lot of people. It's like a tornado. It could devastate one home and the next home over touch nobody. But that next home over is just as affected in this case because what came through was unexplainable, you know? Um, so I think it's interesting that they didn't have more people be disappeared out of the people we're, we're following because that might not check with the 2% of the population idea. Yeah. And I think too, I, I think a lot of arguments I've seen have, 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 have brought up the, this idea of like, you know, it's only 2% of the population. It's not that many people. And there's no way that in this one little town, you're going to have this silent cult and you're going to have Holy <laughs> Wayne's cult and you're going to have this happening and that happening. And I understand those arguments, but I, I feel like the show is supposed to be. And Holy Wayne's cult is not in Mapleton, right? Oh, I, I don't know. Yeah. I, I think that's 
Kevin. His well, I think yeah, I think maybe that was the argument. Like like it's it's involved because oh because Kevin's because son is over there. Tom okay. is involved. Um, but I think the the I think if you can't accept that the town is supposed to be maybe like analogous to the rest of the world. Like I don't think it's it's necessarily trying to tackle everything that it's just it's supposed to be right. a larger metaphor for what's going on in the rest of the right. world. Um, that's just something that I've seen a lot. And like, if you can't really get over that, like I understand maybe <laughs> not getting over that, but if you can't get over that, like he maybe you just shouldn't watch the show. What, what if Mapleton is the odd town out? Yeah, and that's what, what I was going to say. Yeah, too. what if the rest of the country is like, it, and they're like, whoa, what's going on in Mapleton? Right. That's exactly that's that's exactly what I was going to say too. Like there's a good chance that there probably was one small town that was hit harder than everyone else in the world. Right. And so you could very well just be watching that. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I was a little, int- I, that was just something I noticed after um, you, you get into the preacher's story and you realize that he hasn't lost anybody either. I mean, his wife is paralyzed, but she didn't disappear. Um, and speaking of, Holy Wayne and his cult. This was this was kind of a question I had at the end or during the middle of the last episode that I didn't get to ask. Do you think that the handling of Holy Wayne's cult could be foreshadowing for the end of the Guilty Remnant's you, cult? You you get a Waco feel, yeah. right? As you see what the the Guilty Remnant painting over uh, the windows of the church. You do get a feeling of like, okay, this is going to end in flames, which we've seen alluded to before, right? Possibly people are going to die and it's going to be, and we've seen what the uh, SWAT team is is capable of basically like just killing everybody that they run into, including innocent statutory rape victims, you know? (laughs) Um, So I think... I think it could be setting that up. I, I'm I'm interested in in what they do with that. You know, I hope they do something different. And there's yeah. something in the book that I won't spoil um, that might speak to the end goal of the guilty remnant. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, with that being said, it, like at this point, are we pretty much completely off book? At, at this point, he's bringing characters. Uh, together mm-hmm. in ways that they weren't in the book. Nora, from my recollection, has no relationship with the mm-hmm. priest, you know, mm-hmm. things like that. So they're intertwining the characters in a lot more way. But there's something I watched the next week previews and I actually talked to a coworker and she was really excited about one aspect that she saw. And I had to hold back because I'm like, that is probably adhering to the book uh-huh. and in that case it's a total misdirection yeah. like what she assumed from that is not going to happen if they adhere to the book so yeah. to me i think they're still on the beats of the book there's still beats in the book that have not happened yet mm-hmm. that i think would play out in the storyline that they've set up yeah but in how the characters are interacting we're we're pretty much totally off book yeah so uh I, I just have some questions wrapping up sort of the end of the episode and the end of the preacher's story. So the preacher gets hit in the face with a rock, mm-hmm. which my first question is like, who are these people driving around town throwing stuff at like, it, because in the last episode, someone from the guilty remnant gets hit with like, 
red paint or right. something, right? Mm-hmm. And then in this episode, someone, a group, somebody drives by in a Jeep. Maybe it's the same Jeep from the last episode and throws a rock at them, like a big rock. And then they throw a rock at the preacher. It's well, yeah. Like, what are these people doing? And, and I think you get the sense that they did do a lap. Like they got, <laughs> they got the old here and they're like, let's do a lap. Let's get another rock. And then they right. came back around for yeah. no, another No, they one. reversed. Oh, yeah. Right? They, they yeah. reversed back down the street and was like, I don't know if they're just like, we hate this preacher too. It just is like, man, these people are pretty vicious. <laughs> Yeah. Um but anyways, he gets hit in the he gets hit in the face with a with a rock and he goes into a coma or he's not well, I guess it's a coma, right? Because he's out it for, lasts longer for than 72 a day. days. He's mm-hmm. out for 3 days. And so my question is um what happens to his wife in that 72 days because his wife hours. is 72 hours, I'm sorry. Because his wife is being looked after by a housekeeper mm-hmm. who Matt hasn't paid for weeks. Who's threatening, and who's to, threatening stop to stop it. and leave. Um, so I'm just curious if it's going to be like one of those things that just is never addressed, you know, and the show just keeps moving on. Or if it is a bigger thread of like, I mean, because we already know this character is Job, right? More or less. Yeah. So this could very well just be another thing like. He sees that the guilty remnant has bought his church and is painting it all white, um, which I just loved the visual of for some reason. <laughs> yeah. And um, and then he goes home to find his wife. Like, I can't imagine she's dead after three days. I don't. Like, I don't imagine the lady in charge of her right would well, allow her thing, to die. Yeah. I think it's going to be if if I had to guess, I think it's going to be uh, dealt with. With him just paying her extra, mm-hmm. and then her being like, "I'm never working for you again," mm-hmm. pissed off. Yeah, that's, and then and then move on. We addressed it. We we moved on. It could be part of a, a more heartbreaking story where he does come home, and you know, it becomes a either scene where the lady chews him out, or maybe she did walk away. Like, I waited a day and then I left. Sorry, your wife has been without food and water and changing for two days. Yeah, that's your that's your fault. I mean, I don't know. Yeah, um, and then speaking, this is uh, this is a question that I've seen online, and it's, it's something that I kind of just, I kind of justified more or less because it's a TV show, and like you said, it, it starts to feel a little orchestrated. The writing starts to feel a little, a little orchestrated. So um, you're gonna yeah talk about the. I thought the same thing. Yeah, the car so, the, scene. so the preacher wins a hundred and sixty dollars, a hundred sixty thousand dollars in a casino. And then he walks out to his car unescorted uh, by casino security, which, you know, normal procedure is for them to escort you out to your car to make sure something like this doesn't happen. So he walks out unescorted. He parked way super far away, which, you know, going into it, if you're thinking I'm going into a casino to win hundreds of thousands of dollars, why am I going to park so far away in an unlit parking lot in the middle of the night? Um, And then... He doesn't lock his door. And he sits laughably long. And he doesn't just drive away. Like, the guy's not holding a gun on him. He just is standing at his window. Like, why wouldn't he just be... Why wouldn't he just drive away? Right? The car's already running. Right. So, that was... That seemed... That did seem a little forced. I'm I'm going to say, uh, as a defense of that, I'd probably say... This is a man who feels like God is orchestrating his steps. And there's no way 
that God would allow him to win this money and then take it away from him. And that maybe goes back to the story of the man on the roof, you know, that at that moment, Matt is somebody who, if a flash flood happened, he'd probably sit in his car and be like, God's not going to let me drown after winning $160,000. And he'd probably drown. Um, (laughs) But I totally agree with you. When I'm watching it, I'm like, this is just ridiculous. Like, you, you don't play that you don't win publicly $160,000 which he two people are standing there watching him and he's like yep I just won $160,000 walk to his car listen and to a man's whole story yeah, just quickly those two people are only like a few piercings and tattoos away from being like very stereotypical like gutter punks gutter basically pun- yeah <laughs> from the 80s yeah <laughs> and 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 then yeah you don't entertain that story you don't sit there yeah. and be like Oh yeah, the hundred and sixty grand sitting next to me. This yeah. guy just wants two hundred dollars of it. As you, soon as someone knocks my window, I'm like, you speed drive away, drive, and then slam down on the accelerator. And and you think to yourself, why wasn't I already driving? <laughs> and why weren't my doors locked? Couldn't I have breathed deeply going forty yeah. miles an hour down the road? Yeah, uh, yeah. That that to me, and that speaks again to, you know, either it's the mindset of the character or. Like maybe potentially that's happening in the rest of this episode. The writers are just really laying on thick and kind of, you know, their hand is really being seen on the screen a little too much. Yeah. Um, And then, and then that scene ends with him uh, getting mugged, obviously. And then he tackles the guy and he kills him, right? Like that guy's dead. He's not still alive. Yeah. I mean, the scene ends with his girlfriend like screaming bloody murder. She's like screaming her head off. Right. So. I don't know much about, I haven't seen her react to other violent situations. (laughs) So I don't know. Maybe she's a screamer. She could just be dramatic. She could just be dramatic when violence happens around her. Yeah. It's left ambiguous. You don't know, but I would imagine, especially like we said, it's been established this Matt is more or less an analogy for Job. I would imagine that's just another bit of, you know, bad luck is a bit of a misnomer right. when referring to murder. But, you know what I mean? It's just another thing on his plate. But, I mean, after three days in a coma, it's not like police are there that's to question true. him. Yeah, that's true. You know, so he does attack him violently. And you do get a sense after that that Matt feels kind of empowered by it. Yeah. So... Maybe it's just uh, they oversold that moment a little too much. Yeah. Uh, And then I had one last observation that I wanted to talk about before we get into. um, We're going to we're going to talk a little bit about how the show's doing. Mm -hmm. Uh, But the one observation that I really liked or that I thought was really and I think this is intentional. Yeah. intentional by the writers is when I watched it a second time, I noticed that the show opens with Matt talking about how, when he was a boy, his little sister was born and he was praying to God for more attention. And then he was diagnosed with leukemia. Right. Right. And then, (laughs) and then he ends that story and he begins his, his prayer request for Emily, the little girl in a coma by saying, and now this, this little boy is asking for attention again, right? And a few seconds later, someone shows up and just starts beating him up. And I just really liked that. Like, uh, I really like that that the correlation, <laughs> like, right? You know what I mean, it's like this guy is 
constantly asking for attention and he's constantly getting like the attention the he doesn't wrong want. Yeah. Kind of attention. <laughs> like whenever he utters that phrase, like give me more attention or <laughs> right. uh, then somebody shows up and right. just punches him in the face. Pisses on his shoes, right. you know. <laughs> yeah, it, and and I guess I I also in in the overall episode, I was struck, I don't know if you were by how well they balanced Matt as a character where you see him like he prays for Molly. Is that her name? I can't remember. Emily. Emily. Mm-hmm. And then he goes to visit her. Um, and you see a man who actually excels at pastoral care. You know, he seems like he cares for his, fl- or he knows how to, while also balancing this other side of him of showing the, you know, the, the falseness of right. the people who were, who were departed. But I thought that was a good, they really did a good representation where you at least see what the man he used to be, you know? Well, and I think that's what's so, like, heartbreaking about, about Matt, too, is even though he is maybe wrongheaded, he's so honest and he's so genuine and he believes, like, so fully in what he's doing that when you see him, like, constantly failing and keep trying again, it just is, like, you start to feel bad for him, right? It's almost like watching Charlie Brown, right? Like right. he keeps trying to kick the football. Um and and that's kind of what I got from especially the scene uh where he's when he's pulling out his cot, right, to sleep next to his wife and it's mm-hmm. just like, man, this guy is going through so much. But it's like at the same time it's just like what he's doing is like almost indefensible. You know what I mean? Um so I I thought they did a really a really you know, that's one of the reasons why the episode is so great is because they just do such a good job of balancing him out and not being like just this despicable guy who's spilling everyone's secrets. Right. I think what what I thought too was the, um, the, the idea of Matt doing his duty as a priest the fact that they had the we didn't talk about the baptism, mm-hmm. um, the, the the corollary between you know the washing of the baby, the washing of his wife, like he's a man who cares, mm-hmm. you know for for his wife as well, um, and you have also I wanted to touch really quickly on um, the the painting in his house. Mm-hmm. They they has that's of Job mm-hmm. actually something that um, was brought to my mind reading. The, the recap on Vox.com, mm-hmm. um, which I think that guy, again, I'll, he's doing a great job. Mm-hmm. Um, but also the idea of, um, you know, this episode opens on Epiphany. You see him changing the, uh, what's it, the sign at the front. Mm-hmm. His marquee. Yeah, the marquee. I can think of that term. Anyway, um but but basically, Epiphany uh, is the manifestation of Christ to the Gentiles as represented by the Magi, Matthew 2, um, verses 1 through 12. It can also be a reference to a manifestation of a divine or supernatural being. And so I wanted to just draw attention to that as well, that um, this idea of the Epiphany being a through line, which I think is there as well. Mm-hmm. To me, and I think I think your take is interesting as well. The 
the fundamental question I think is, is this a point of view um, story of just a man of faith or is this the identification, the epiphany of supernatural manifestation, you know, in this universe, in mm-hmm. this world? Um, the fact that they chose epiphany, I think, is is meaningful. Mm-hmm. Um, so I just wanted to bring that up. And, and again, if you want to read more about a really good take on that, you can read the Vox yeah. article. Yeah. Um, he goes into it in, in a lot of depth. Yeah. So let's uh, close by talking about the ratings. Maybe we can uh, talk a little bit about the future of the show or the we need a jingle of a future of the show. <laughs> we need a jingle for the... Um, yeah, I wanted to do this too because going into this episode, this was where a lot of people anecdotally from work and stuff mm-hmm. were like, I'm done with the show. Yeah. I'm done. And they were not interested. And I remember telling them, like, I've heard episode four is amazing. Like, stick through it. Um, so what made me interested to track the ratings is to see if my anecdotal evidence pays out, you know, pans out, and people do drop off going into the third. Or do you think, and this is my question for you, you know, not knowing the numbers, obviously, in the future, do you think the third episode is enough to, like, hook people? Do you think it's enough to kind of bring up, do you think it's that good of an episode where somebody on the fence might be like, yeah, I'm in? I think it is, but it's, hmm, it's not like, it's not like the f- ending of the fourth episode of True Detective, where I don't think that that was, I, I think that is easier to say, like, you've got to watch this episode of True Detective because there's this 10 minute long uncut scene at the end it's easier to explain than it is like you need to watch this 56 minute episode (laughs) of the leftovers because this guy's character development is just amazing amazing right like that's not as appealing as the true detective one so and no that just doesn't work for some people a lot of the things i was reading on reddit was like i thought this episode was more boring than the other two like i'm done with this show so you know it just depends it kind of to me, it kind of feels like a sinking ship, but at the same time, I think of shows like like um, Bored to Death, which I don't think yeah. Bored to Death had great ratings, mm. but it was critically at least liked, right. and it was on for three seasons, three seasons yeah. whereas you've got like John from Cincinnati it didn't have very good ratings, and everyone was talking about how stupid it was, and they canceled that pretty much right away. So I feel like it's at least it at least, the show at least has the support of the critics, and it doesn't seem like it would cost a lot of money to make, right? Yeah, and HBO has had a huge bust. You know, last season, luck didn't pan out, right? You know, and so I wonder too if this came at the right time, where you know, what if luck was doing well and they're like, well, we got, you know, kind of two big budget shows coming up or you would think that luck does because you're working with animals. That's the balloon yeah. budgets Yeah. with that being off the slate. And that would have been running also boardwalk empires running into its last mm-hmm. um, season. True blood is in its last season. Mm-hmm. I think this is the right time. If you're a showrunner to put on a show because it's not like HBO has a lot to fall back yeah, on. That's true. And even some of their, Big shows are kind of, you know, running or midway or 
kind of running out of steam. I know mm. Curb Your Enthusiasm keeps like Larry David. I think he's still like, okay, I'll do it. I won't do it. Well, I'll yeah, it. I, I just read it. something where it said he he said he's going to do a ninth season, but he probably won't do it before 2016. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> he's like, I'll I'll get to it when I get to it. You yeah. know, Veep just ended. I, I I think this is the perfect time. Like I'm close to pitching them a show about two guys who podcast <laughs> right. around a about dinner other table. HBO shows about about <laughs> yeah. other HBO shows. They, they don't have like a Talking Dead, like uh, yeah. Nerdist right. Network approved uh, talking show. Yeah, why don't they uh, look to the guy with to the guys with three iTunes reviews, two of which are positive? <laughs> yeah. Well, and the other one has a positive thing in it. That's true, right? Don't um, forget that. Yeah. All right. Well, with that, with that being said, we'll finish by saying: email us. Let us know what you think of the show. Um, if there's anything you want to like hear us address specifically, maybe yeah. with the show. If there's anything we missed, but yeah, email us. All that stuff is in the uh, description of the show. Links you can find all that stuff. Uh, but the easiest way to get in contact us w- or to just find what we're doing would be on Twitter. I am at Blizzard with nine Z's. I'm at Things Come Right, spelled exactly how it sounds. Yeah, and that's right as in like the direction, which the I direction. guess is implied with Things Come Right, right? Yeah. yeah. Wouldn't make sense otherwise. Right. <laughs> that uh, never stopped anyone before, though, on the internet. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Um, yeah, so that'll do it. We'll uh, see you next next week.